apologize. But uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 32, uh, verses 1 through 8 this morning. And before we read that text together, I'd like to remind you of a big overview of where we've come from. You remember that the book of Isaiah, we can think of it much divided like our entire Bible is. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. Uh, our Bible has 66 books in it. Uh, the book of Isaiah can be divided into two parts, amazingly. Chapters 1 through 39 uh, talks about conflict and judgment. And then chapters 40 through 66 uh, talk about hope and restoration, uh, which is exactly how our Bible is divided, right? Or we see the hope in Christ, and, and yet we don't have that hope fulfilled until Christ comes in our New Testament. And so remember that the book of Isaiah is much built like the entirety of our Bible. Where do we find ourselves? We, we're still in chapter 32, which means that we haven't yet gotten to uh, that, that area of hope and, and restoration yet. So we're still in that conflict judgment mode here in chapter 32. Where have we come from recently? We, we were in chapter 28 when we started this particular theme. And through 31, it continues on through chapter 32. I just want to tell you about three themes that we've seen reoccur in these past few chapters. Three of those themes. The first theme that we see over and over again in these last few chapters um, is man's rebellion. God has been highlighting that for us over and over. Uh, two references, Isaiah 30, verse 9. They are a rebellious people, lying children, chilling, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 28. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the scythe of destruction and to place in the jaws the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So it's not just the children of Israel here he's regarding as being a rebellious people, but the nations entirely. God sees his, his people Israel, yes, but he sees the nations collectively and he says a rebellious people. Okay. The second thing that we see is God's wrath. Not only do we see the rebellion that's happening, but we see God's wrath to follow. Isaiah 29, verse 6, You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder, earthquake, great noise, whirlwind, tempest, a flame of devouring fire. Isaiah 30, verse 27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke his lips are full of fury, his tongue is like a devouring fire. A description for us of the great fury and wrath of the Lord on rebellion. But then we also see this third theme reoccurring over and over, and that is God's mercy. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Isaiah 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be sevenfold, the light of seven days. And in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people, and he heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So he takes this rebellious people. In some cases, he disciplines them. In other cases, he pours out his wrath on them. Those who are disciplined turn, and he says, I'm waiting to be gracious to you, but I'm going to inflict blows on you until it comes about that you wait on me. And you will come to me. And this is where we arrive in chapter 32. The themes remain. Okay, we're going to see, we're going to see God's uh, people who are being rebellious. We're going to see God's wrath. We're going to see uh, God's mercy as well. But in chapter 32, verses 1 through 8, we get a glimpse of the hope 
that's coming for us in these last 27 chapters of Isaiah because this particular section um, is far more placed on the hope that we see in the future king. All right, and that's how it starts. The question the people might be asking is this. God, you've promised us life and hope and restoration. You've promised that you're waiting on us to be gracious to us. Um, you're going to turn us. You're going to heal us. You're going you're gonna to do all these great things. When will you be gracious? When will you be merciful to us? We're waiting for that. When will God he bring healing to our brokenness? When will God give us ears to hear? When will God give us hearts that desire him? When are you going to do that? And we get insight to that here. Let's read verses 32, uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice, and each will be like a hiding place from the wind and a shelter from the storm, like the streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, for the, and nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly. His heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. To leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel... His devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even the plea of the needy that is right when it is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Okay, let's look back at verse 1. Starts by saying this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Not the first time that we've heard that. We go back, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. You'll remember this. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he will decide equity for the meek with the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. So one day a perfect and righteous judge is coming to reign and to rule. Right? He's, he's pouring out judgment, right? But he's also reigning and he's ruling. Those who are obedient, right, live in his kingdom and they receive the blessings of the kingdom. Those who do not are the wicked and he destroys them. That's the king that's coming. The king that's coming reappears here, chapter 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Now we talked about this often in the book of Isaiah, that we find double fulfillments or a partial fulfillment and then a complete fulfillment, or an imperfect fulfillment followed by a perfect fulfillment, which is what we see here in Hezekiah. Hezekiah came after his father Ahaz, who was wicked, and then a king before him who was wicked, and a king before him who was wicked, and a king before him who was wicked. There was wickedness in the kings. And in particular, Hezekiah starts to reign, the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom, of course, at the age of 25 years old. 25 years old, becomes king of Israel. He reigns for 29 years. In that, we see 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6. Here's the summary of, of this king. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him or before him. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments of the Lord, the commandments of Moses. Okay, did he keep them perfectly? 
I hope you know the answer is no, because no one keeps the law of the Lord perfectly but one. So although it says, generally speaking, he was an upright, righteous king, but who is righteous and who is good? None but God. So we have to see that this earthly king comes in, and does he reign in righteousness? Yes, because he puts away the foreign gods. And he says, you need to stop with all this mess, and we need to serve the king, the God of Israel. Okay, we need to serve him and him alone. So put away all this falsehood, and let's focus on God. And you know what? Hezekiah does that. He restores the state of affairs rightly as they should be. But Hezekiah dies. Israel goes into Babylonian captivity. Um, Things go pretty bad for quite a while. The reign and the rule of Hezekiah was imperfect, and it was temporary. But the reign and the rule of a future king will be perfect, and it will be for all eternity. This is the king. This is the king that we're waiting for, Jesus. Hezekiah foreshadowed it in a great rule, but he died, and his rule wasn't perfect. But we have Christ come, who never dies. He lives eternally with the Father, and he restores the state of affairs perfectly for us. Okay, so there is a little bit of foreshadowing here, an imperfect fulfillment of this coming very soon, and then a perfect fulfillment coming at a future time. But then it continues on. It doesn't just talk about a king. It talks about princes. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Um, In this particular circumstance, commentators are kind of divided on what this actually is referring to. Um, But altogether, what we can say is this, is that the princes are those people who enforce and live by the kingdom standards. Okay, so all those who serve under the king as princes, right, are those who live by and enforce the kingdom standards and rules, right? The righteousness of the king is the righteousness that's enforced by the princes. Those who live by and uphold kingdom standards. All right, in verse 2, look at it. Each, each of these just mentioned, will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like the streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock, in a weary land, all right? Again, this, this kind of wording isn't new to us. Isaiah 4, 6. There will be a booth and a shade from the heat, a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. What will be? What will be? And it says, a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Because the king rules in righteousness and injustice. What is our shelter from all the bad stuff in this world? Righteousness and justice. Perfect righteousness and perfect justice that only has been established by the true king. And those who are to uphold perfect righteousness and perfect justice are those who live under the kingdom standards. Now, who are those people? Well, it's believers, it's us. So what should we be doing? Upholding the perfect, righteous, and just standards of our king. So we already see this is, this is pretty personal already because it, it affects us. It affects the way we live. It affects the way we interact with the world around us. We should be the people upholding the kingdom standards. Do we do that? I hope the answer in your head is already, well, kind of, but no, not really, I don't. Right? That's the answer, isn't it? 
I kind of do, but no. I mean, if you were to, I mean, put me next to Jesus, say, here's Jesus' standards, here's my standards. Yeah, I don't quite match up to Jesus. Can we all agree on that? Okay, you're pretty stone-faced right now. It, that's universal for us because there is only one perfect, righteous king, and it's not you. Okay, so we look to the king, and we, by the help of the spirit within us, we uphold the kingdom standards. Okay, and when you do that, it is like a shade and a protection for you in the storm. All right, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And then, okay, so we look at verse 3. It continues, this, build, this is building here. All right, we're not just leaving this behind. We're going to come back to it. Verse 3, though, let's look at what it says. It says, then, in this situation where there is a king ruling and there are those under him upholding the kingdom standards, in that scenario... Verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly, and the fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. In that situation, where the king is ruling and there are those under the king upholding kingdom standards, this will be the situation that the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And you might say, well, okay, if my eyes see, they're not closed already, right? So why do you, it's kind of redundant to say that, isn't it? That I have eyes and, and, and my eyes aren't closed, but they see. But the only time my eyes can see is when they're open anyway. So why say that? It's because before we were under the rule of the king, we did have eyes and they were open, but they didn't see anything. And we did have ears, and they were paying attention to the world around them, but you know what? They didn't hear anything. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. Now, do we have the ability to understand and know things before we were under the rule and reign of the king? Well, yeah. I, I, I figured out how to drive. That's a good story in itself, I'll tell you that sometime. I figured out how to drive under that situation. I, I learned that, if nothing else in my life, I guess I learned that. Um, but I, I learned that, but in learning and understanding, could I really truly learn and understand? Well, no, because I couldn't learn and understand what? Kingdom principles, kingdom ideals, right? I couldn't uphold that. I didn't understand it. I couldn't see it. I didn't know. It was a, a world I could not see. I couldn't hear it. I couldn't understand it. Could I speak? Yes, but could I speak truth and righteousness? No, not at all. I had a stammering tongue. I couldn't speak distinctly. Definitely true for me on all levels, actually. Uh, verse 5, the fool will no longer be called noble, the scoundrel not said to be honorable. So these are opposites, right? So what we once called noble was actually foolishness. And what we actually said was honorable when our eyes are open and our ears can hear and our hearts can understand, now that what we once called honorable, we actually see as the exact opposite. Isaiah 29.10, do you remember what it says? The Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He's closed your eyes and he's covered your heads so that you cannot see, you cannot hear. There are people walking all around us who can see but are blind, who can hear but they're deaf. They have a heart for understanding, but they know nothing. They have a tongue, but they can't speak. Because 
They could not see or reason or speak. Here's what they did. The exact opposite of what the kingdom tells them to do. The kingdom righteousness, the kingdom justice, all the thing that the king stands for, the people did the exact opposite of what the kingdom says to do. And I want to show this to you. I want you to turn in your Bible with me. This is the only place I'm really going to have you turn to this morning. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Let's see how this actually plays out. When a people can't hear or see the truth of God, what do they do in turn? What do they do instead? We're going to read verses 18 through 32. Now, this is detailed. This is exactly, this is, by the way, this is not just a story or like a metaphor. This is in reality what happens. Let's read it. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, right? The exact opposite of the kingdom. Of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, here's why, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Well, listen to the word. Their woman exchanged natural relations that are, uh, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased name to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossip, slanderous, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so here's what happens when you have a rebellious people who can't see, who can't hear, who can't understand. They take the righteous truth of God and they exchange it for a lie. The foolishness of the world suppresses the truth of God and they exchange it for a lie. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. What do you take? You take the truth of God and the gospel and you say to some it is It is the most foolish thing that you could ever think of. But to others, it is the most marvelous thing that you could ever think of. Two extreme opposites. So the people who claim to be wise say, Christianity is foolishness. But to those who believe, they say Christianity or the cross of Christ is all that there is. 
In fact, Christ is the very wisdom of God. To polar opposites. To those who are under the king and his righteousness and to those who are not. You're getting a clear picture of these two worlds, of these two kingdoms. And the king that's coming, and one day those rebellious children, who are rebellious by nature, will have ears that actually begin to hear and eyes that actually begin to see and hearts that actually start to understand. But there will be some, under, under, uh, some of those who under the rule of the king will say something like this. So we're living under the king in his righteous reign and his righteous rule and one day we're going to say something like this. I must have been wrong about that. I guess I wasn't right after all. If that's never happened to you, you really need to question whose rule you're under. <laughs> because the rule of the king does not match your guiding principles for life. Okay, let me, let me tell you what I mean. Titus 3.3. 3. For we ourselves, okay, we, this is talking about you, it's talking about me, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was you and that was me outside of Christ. But inside of Christ, we are not that. That's who we were. But who are we in Christ? We are the exact opposite. We are those who are not to be foolish. We are not to be disobedient. We're, we're already in trouble just by those two things. We are not to be led astray. We are not to be slaves to various passions and pleasures, right? We are not to be those things. But what do we end up being? The very thing that we are not to be. That's what we end up being. We end up living like we are not under the rule of the righteous king. That's what we turn into. We are the rebellious children. That's who we are. But we are the rebellious children that God has mercy on. Thank goodness. So we live in a divided world. There's a people on one side who can hear, who can see, and who can understand. And then you have another people who seeing don't see and hearing don't hear and have hearts of understanding but actually understand nothing. They claim to be wise, but they're fools. We live in a world that is divided. Here's the problem. Sometimes we're confused as to which kingdom we actually live in. And the people who are fools tell us something and we say, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that, that sounds right. And we go along with what they say. They're, they don't understand. They're foolish. They don't see. They don't hear. They don't understand. Why are you going along with what they have come up with? Right? How often do we do that? It continues. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> okay, so we're talking about, if you just look back at verse 5, the fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. That is, there's been restored order in that we actually see what's bad and what is good, Right? The murderer is no longer said to be good, but instead bad because murder is bad because our king has said in righteousness and justice, murder is wrong. So we say, therefore, a murderer is not good and not to be held in high honor, right? Okay, 
and so goes all these other things, lying, whatever, whatever you might say, okay, by God's righteous standards. So it says, it will come to be that those who hear, understand, and see will no longer call foolish people noble, okay? And then it, and then it goes on to talk about these two different categories of people. For the fool, verse 6, the fool speaks folly, his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord. Why does he utter error? Because he doesn't understand anything. To leave the craving and the hungry unsatisfied, to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even the plea of the needy when it is right. He who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Okay, so let's talk about these three different types of people. We have the fool, the scoundrel, and the noble. Right? Those three people, the fool and the scoundrel are very similar to each other, uh, and, and we'll talk about that. Who's the fool here? He speaks folly. He plans iniquity to do what? To practice ungodliness, to speak falsehood about God, and to be utterly selfish. He's unconcerned about the flourishing of humanity. Someone is in need. Someone is hurt. Not my problem. That's the fool. And, and just quickly before we go beyond that, do you see someone in need and harden your heart against them? Because that's a foolish thing to do. It, it's right here. Uh, not, my, not my problem. But we do that. Let's just be honest. Speak falsely about God in ignorance. Who's ever said something false about God? Yeah, everybody in the room. Everybody in the room has. Now we need to be more careful. Okay, so this is the fool, and the scoundrel is so very close to him. A dishonest person is really this, the scoundrel here is what that means. A person that desires to lie, deceive, bring pain, hurt, and ruin on others. So the fool on one, on one side is kind of just this ignorant person who's acting out of his own ignorance. He's just a selfish person who does what he wants to do. Um, but the scoundrel is actually planning to do harm. I want to bring you down. I'm not bringing myself down just because I'm ignorant. I'm bringing you down with me, right? I'm taking everybody down around me, and I'm planning to do harm to people. Okay, so these are the two groups of people. Let's talk about the fool. I'm going to, I'm going to give you four references here about what, uh, actually three from Proverbs, one from Psalms. They're very quick. They're one verse each, but they talk about the fool. Let's just be mindful of who the fool is, all right? Ask if this is you, all right? Am I a fool? Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expresses his own opinion. Is that you? The honest answer is, sometimes, yeah, that, that is me. Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man holds it back. I'm seeing smiles, okay. That means, yeah, I do that. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Okay? Three very, very quick things, but automatically cut us to the heart because we very soon realize, I'm not so wise, am I? I might be more identified with the fool than with the noble. 
Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek for God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Notice it says God looks around to see if there is anyone who what? Understands. Who is it who understands? No one because we are blind and deaf and have hearts of, that don't understand. We're the rebellious children, and that's who we are by nature. Okay, so he looks to see, is anyone good? Is anyone going to uphold righteousness and justice? None. That's why we need Christ. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is good. There is no one good but him. We need Christ. You don't need your own goodness. You don't need your own righteousness. You need to fall under the reign and rule of the one who is righteous. And you're not going to obey his rule perfectly. But by the Spirit's help in you, you will learn to be obedient to that righteous rule as you live. So what is the noble? It says in verse 8, but he who is noble, finally we get to kind of some good news here. Let, what should I be, not what should I not be? What should I be? Okay, he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. To me, I say that's a very generic statement. I want more than that, right? I, I wonder if you read that and you think, oh, okay, well, there's the solution. Just be a noble person and stand on noble things. Is that, is that the answer? Uh, is that how I'm not a fool, just by doing good things? Well, we know the answer to that is no, don't we? We know the answer to that is no. Okay, so what is a noble thing? A noble thing is something worthy of respect and honor. So the general question naturally has to be, who do we need to get that respect? Who are we getting respect from and who are we trying to honor? Isn't that the question? It's, it, it's someone, something worthy of respect and honor. From who? From other people? From the world? Obviously, we know the answer, right? It, it's, it's under the king, the, the one who we live under his rule. How do we do a noble thing? Okay, so what I'd like to talk about the next couple of minutes is this. And, and let me make this statement before we get into it. Many of you know this who come here regularly, but you might not if, if I don't say something here to give you a little caveat, that... We cannot earn our salvation by goodness because there is no good in us. We must rely on the goodness that is in Christ by faith. But yet, after we become a believer and we are in the kingdom of God, we are living under his righteous rule, upholding the righteous standards of the kingdom, there must then be a change in us that upholds those standards. Those upholding the standards of the kingdom does not save you, but you uphold the standards of the kingdom because you are part of that kingdom already. You are already saved. So we have to change and uphold righteous standards of the kingdom, not to be saved, but because we are saved. We go back to James, and he says, what kind of faith saves you? That's the question. Faith that doesn't have works or faith that does have works? Which faith is true faith? The faith that has works is true saving faith. The faith that doesn't have works is, in fact, no faith at all. That's James's point. And so this is what we're talking about. We're going to talk about Christian virtue. When we talk about noble things, on noble things he stands, 
we ought to be those people who stand on noble things under the kingdom of righteousness and justice. Why? Because of all the people of the earth, we are the people who uphold the righteous and justice of God. Who else does that? Who else in this world upholds the righteousness and justice of God other than the people of his kingdom? We should be those people. So the question is, how do we become those people? How do we get better at doing that? How do we become more sanctified in that area? How do we, how do we stand on noble things? That's the question. How do we become not the fool, but the noble here? Now, again, this is inside of Christianity here. Okay, we're not talking about how does one become a Christian. We're talking about for those who are believers in Christ by faith. How do we make a change? What, what needs to happen? What needs to be the focus of the Christian life? What should I think about? What should I do? What, how do I act? What, and how does that get better? How do I get off of this plateau that I'm in in my Christian life? What should I be doing? What should I be pursuing? That's the question. We're talking about Christian virtue here. And here's the word. If you're one that takes notes, I'm going to have a couple of things that would probably be good for you to go back and reference. We're going to talk this morning, and I've mentioned this at a a Wednesday night study. I I looked it up back when we talked about, when we were in our study of the Ten Commandments, when I talked about the First Commandment, I mentioned this in passing. I went back to look to see if I was repeating myself, and I'm not. But uh, we're talking about this morning the transcendentals. The transcendentals. That is, the things that transcend. What does it mean for something to transcend? That is something that goes beyond. Something that continues on through. It can't be stopped. It goes for it. It transcends space and time and all of history. Albert Moeller says, these are the indispensable categories that explain the world. You might wonder why we're talking about this. It will make perfect sense here in just a second. I hope anyway. The transcendentals are this. There's, there's just a list. It's, it's really just three things. All that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is true. These are the transcendentals. Now, sometimes the real is a fourth category that's, that's given, but we're going to take the reality that God exists. He is the real. He is the great I am. He is the great truly existent one. So we take the real and we say, well, that is God. And what flows from God is all that is good, beautiful, and true. Now, there must be unity within the transcendentals because God himself is unified. Here's what I mean. This will make sense. This is very practical. A fool calls something good that is actually bad, right? A fool calls something beautiful that is, in fact, not beautiful. We would be acting foolishly if we called something good or beautiful or true if, in fact, it was not good, beautiful, and true, right? The kingdom standards of righteousness and justice help us to know what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true. But there must be unity within these things. If something is not true, that means it is not good and beautiful. If something is not good, it is not beautiful and it is not true. Okay? All these things flow from God, who is the great, true, existent one. Okay? I'm going to give you some examples here because this is a principle that we need to apply in making noble, right assessment of the world that we live in. And it can be just as easy as this. 
you go to see a movie, okay? I'm going to go see a movie on Tuesday, Aladdin. I'm going to go see Aladdin. It's Amanda's birthday on Tuesday, and what she asked for was to go see the new Aladdin movie, okay? So that's what we're going to go do. We're going to see Aladdin on Tuesday. Um, I, I, because that was a big movie when we were kids, I remember going to the theater to see the original Aladdin when it came out. Uh, so anyway, as a nostalgia thing. Anyway, um, we're going to see Aladdin. Maybe you're a movie watcher. Maybe you watch a show, listen to a song. Let's just say you go to a movie, and you watch it, and in that movie, it doesn't matter what it is, uh, you come out and someone says, was that a good movie? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. It was so good. And I've heard that from people, and I say, oh, really? And I go and I watch it, and I have to turn it off about five minutes into it. Why? Can't stand the language, the sexuality of it, and the ideals that act as though God does not exist. Uh, that's not a good movie. Why is that not a good movie? Because it's speaking things that are false, and it's saying this is beautiful when in reality it is not beautiful. So here's, the, here's what we get caught into. We say, well, no, God doesn't say that's beautiful, but this movie is portraying it as beautiful. Yeah, I know that they're saying stuff that's not true, but, but at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, it was still a good movie, though. So it wasn't beautiful and it wasn't true, but it was good? How can that be? You understand why unity within the transcendentals is so important. And so we have to then say, that if something is not true, something is not beautiful, it is not good. And Albert Muller talks about this. He, he has a lot of teachings on this. I was, I was in a, class, a classroom once. He was one of my teachers, and uh, that's why I remember all of this. He, uh, he would talk about this, and he gave the example of only with God as the center of reality and unity within the transcendentals can there be joy and beauty in the diagnosis of death. Do you know why? Because it's true. If it is true, the worst news you could imagine, and if it's true news, if it's true, then only in the Christian worldview can that thing both be good and beautiful. But you might say, how can it be good and beautiful that someone is dying from cancer? How can it be good and beautiful that a boy was born with Down syndrome? The world can't explain it. The world can't explain it. But truth is God's area. And if God so ordains it, does he, in his, in his uh, workings of the world, he is working all things together to the counsel of his will. Correct? And if something is true and we look at it, that is why we can't look at something that comes to pass and say, that's not beautiful, it's not good, it's not true, let none of it is good, the world is falling apart but I thought God was ordaining all things to, according to the counsel of his will. What happened to that? Well, he is, but I guess he was sleeping. That, didn't, that wasn't supposed to happen. God missed that one. So that, altogether bad. We want 
beauty, but we don't want truth. We want goodness, but without reality. Right? You ever imagine a perfect situation, but that situation doesn't actually exist? We probably do it all the time. I do it all the time. I imagine the perfect scenario, right? The perfect scenario doesn't exist here. So you want something that's good and beautiful, but you don't want what's true? You know, you get all these people with uh, magazines and airbrushing and fixing this and fixing that. that. You know, that's not real. But our world calls it what? Beautiful. We've messed things up, haven't we? The fools are telling us what is right. And we go right along with it. We go right along with it. Okay? Now let me read for you the, the passage of Scripture that I wanted to get to in talking about these transcendental properties here. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. See if what I just said to you does not fit perfectly in what Paul is speaking here to the Philippians, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Okay, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. These are the things that your mind should be wrapped up in and not the opposite. What is dishonorable, what is unjust, what is unpure, what is not lovely. But how do we define these things? How do we define what is true? How do we know what is true? How do we know what is honorable and what is dishonorable? How do we know what is just and what is unjust? How do we know what's pure? How do we know what's commendable? How do we know what's excellent? How do we know what's worthy of praise? How do we know what these things are so that we can think about them and practice them? We look to the king and we look to his word, what he has revealed to us. I hope this morning that you've been challenged in this way by our text. If we look back at it, starts off with a king who will come and reign in righteousness and princes who rule in justice, okay? You have the king and those who uphold the kingdom standards. And very quickly, I think we saw that we ought to be those who uphold kingdom standards of righteousness and justice, but we do a very poor job of doing that. But if we did, the righteousness and justice of God would be a hiding place from the wind and storms and stream, and they would be a shade and a weary land. By the way, how often do you find yourself here in this mixed-up world um, wanting some kind of shelter and refreshment and healing and rejuvenation to your spirit? you find yourself wanting that? And what do you go to pursue to try to get that? What the world says the fools, what they say you should do. That's, that's what we go to. Uh, you need to just do this. That'll make you feel better. And so, so we do it. Because that's what they said to do. But they have ears who can't hear. They have eyes that don't see. They have hearts that don't understand. But yet, that's who we listen to. To find refreshment to our soul. 
No, we need to pursue righteousness and justice. That is refreshment. That is refreshment. To your soul. Okay? Doesn't mean pleasant to your life circumstances. You know? You're going to take absolute perfect joy in everything that you're doing. It's going to be very pleasant. Things are going to go perfect for you. You know? Live that great abundant life. You know? With everything that you ever wanted. That, that's not going to happen. That's not what's promised here. What's promised is a refreshing of your spirit. And then the eyes of those who uh, see uh, will not be closed. Thank goodness we can see. The ears of those who hear will, will pay attention. The, art of, the heart of the hasty will come to know. The tongue of the stammers will start to speak distinctly. Are we those people who continually, day after day, my eyes are opening more and more to see the things of God? Day after day, my ears seem to open up more and more that I hear the things of God. Every day that passes, my heart opens more to the understanding of God. And as I speak, I speak more clearly the things of God. Is that happening for you? Is it a progression in your life that every day you are understanding, you are talking, you are hearing the kingdom more and more in your life? Or is it possible? Is it possible? that you did at a time. You can look back in your life and say, yeah, it was like that before. But you have not reached the end. You have not reached the goal. You have not yet achieved it until your death. Don't stop. Continue every day. Evaluate what you do in this life. Because we don't want to end up like the fool and the scoundrel. The fool will no longer be called noble. Okay, the fool speaks folly in his heart. He's busy with iniquity. He wants to practice ungodliness. He wants to utter error concerning the Lord. He leaves the cravings of the hungry unsatisfied. He deprives the thirsty of drink. His devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes. He wants to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. That's all that's wrong. But he who is noble plans noble things. And on noble things he stands. This is your foundation that you stand on in your life. Noble things. Well, what are noble things? I want you to remember that reference that I gave you, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. That's very important. And we take these principles and the ideas that I, I hope you at least somewhat understood me. We're talking about these transcendental properties is that we have to evaluate the things in our life. And remember, we are those with open eyes. We are those with open hearts and open ears. So we need to, by the Spirit's help in us, evaluate the things of this life. We need to be those who are noble, standing on noble things. Because we are those who uphold the righteous standards of our King. Let's pray.